Uh, greetings. Uh, this seems to be on. Um, welcome to today's panel. And uh, I'll start by introducing the participants. Uh, John Kingsdale is the executive director of the Commonwealth Health Insurance Connector Authority, an independent authority established under Massachusetts's landmark health reform legislation of 2006 to promote coverage of the uninsured. He has taught at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Boston University School of Public Health. Michael Tanner is a senior fellow at Cato Institute, where he researches a variety of domestic policies with a particular emphasis on health care reform, social welfare policy, and social security. He's the co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Health Care and How to Free It, Second edition, 2007. Uh, and Dr. Aaron Yelowitz is an adjunct scholar with the Cato Institute and an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Kentucky. Uh, Yelowitz's most recent, most recent work focuses on the impacts of living wage mandates and health insurance mandates. Uh, welcome to all the participants. Um, and uh, we'll start off by uh, going down the line and, and uh, talking about uh, the, the question before us today. Should I stand up? My name is Aaron Yellowitz, and uh, I want to spend a bit of time today talking about employer mandates, employer health insurance mandates. Uh, So in a nutshell, just to give you a sense on what employer mandates are, basically employers face a choice of either paying, uh, paying a fee to the state where the state then provides health insurance or providing that health insurance themselves. Um, I, it's potentially a politically appealing way to expand health insurance for some people because of the fact that, in general, it wouldn't require much new taxes. So if we basically tell employers you must provide health insurance, then at least on the budget, it doesn't seem like there's uh, much cost at all to it. And in fact, it would certainly encourage uh, more insurance coverage. Uh, so. Basically, as background, I've uh, studied state-level employer mandates for a number of years. Uh, The most recent bout of employer mandates got started around 2003 in California when, uh, right before he was recalled, Gray Davis signed a piece of legislation that would have uh, imposed a fairly large employer mandate on California businesses. Basically, what it would have done is if you were a business of 50 or more employees, you would have been forced to offer and pay for the majority of coverage for a single individual. And if you were a business of 200 or more employees, then you were forced to offer and pay for um, a family plan. Uh, And so basically, uh, with that in mind, people came to me and asked, what might the employment effects be? What might the cost be? And uh, I started talking to a number of other colleagues about this. And many of them were under the impression that employer, so they weren't terribly interested in studying employer mandates because perhaps they thought that employer mandates were no big deal. Uh, And I'll give you what I view as sort of, I I guess, half-truths or propaganda on why you might want to believe that. And then with the digging that I've done, uh, why I'm convinced that employer mandates are actually extremely costly, which then in turn leads to all all sorts of unintended consequences. So employer mandates have been proposed not just in California. Um, California, actually, the governor signed it, and then the voters a year later in 2004, by a 51 to 49 percent margin, narrowly overturned the employer mandate that was supposed to have started in 2006. So basically, California voters rejected employer mandates, but by a very narrow margin. Uh, New York, Washington State, and a number of other states, including Maryland, uh, through a so-called Walmart bill, uh, basically have thought about employer mandates. And then Massachusetts has what I interpret as a relatively small employer mandate uh, in, in, the, in their health care reform. Uh, so I've written on this for places like Employment Policies Institute and uh, Public Policy Institute of California. And in the work that I've done, the natural kinds of questions to ask are, first off, how much might it cost employers? How much... Uh, insurance coverage will we get for uh, these sorts of mandates? And then what business responses might there be? Might wages fall in real or nominal terms when the employer is forced to pay for additional health care coverage? Might employment fall as low-wage workers now become relatively more expensive and we can't shift back wages on them? Um, So during question and answers, to the extent that people have questions about any of those economic effects, I'll try and answer those the best that I can. Uh, What I'm going to try and do today, though, is 
talk to some extent about a few arguments that are used to sell employer mandates and just to make you a little bit smarter about when you hear it, whether you should necessarily believe uh, the kind of half story that's being told to you. So imagine that I told you that California's legislation, which basically targets firms of 50 or more, would mean that very few firms are affected, that most of those relatively large firms already offer health insurance to their um, employees, like 98, 99% of them. Um, Most firms already pay for a substantial amount of premiums, that there are very low new costs per insured worker, and the cost for the uninsured is not terribly high. Um, Regardless of your uh, political thinking, you might think, okay, that doesn't sound like much of a big deal at all. So those sorts of arguments are used to convince people to not pay attention to employer mandates. And we can do a little bit of digging into each of those kinds of arguments in turn and try and see whether they hold water. Now, um, in the packet that you have, there are some PowerPoints that did not turn out so well in black and white. Um, my email is on the very front page, so if you want to see sort of pretty color pictures uh, uh, of the charts, more than happy to send them to you. Um, let's take the first thing, which is that very few firms are affected. Um, a quote from the California Medical Association in support of California's pay or play mandate back in 2003 said that Senate Bill 2 was actually a moderate and reasonable step that would affect less than 5% of California employers. The key problem is that there's a key difference between um, employers and the number of workers. There are very few employers that are large, but they employ a lot of people. So just to give a sense, in California, 5% of firms, the top 5%, employ 61% of the workers. So although it might be true that a firm cut off of 50 employees only affects very few firms, that would be because, say, Yellowitz Consulting of one person wouldn't count in there, and there are a whole bunch of firms like that. There are very few Microsofts, Walmarts of the world that have tons of employees. So even though it doesn't affect many firms, it certainly affects a lot of workers, and uh, that will certainly matter for costs. So uh, the chart in there basically shows that a very small percentage of firms, which definitionally is going to be true, actually employ you know, a non-trivial amount of workers because there are large firms out there. A second argument, uh, and again, I have a chart for this, is that large firms already offer health insurance. Um, So a quote from Eric Schlosser, who was the author of Fast Food Nation, uh, writing in the LA Times, I think, in support of this uh, pay-or-play mandate, said, among employers with 200 or more full-time workers, 99% already provide health insurance. Among those with 50 to 150 workers, 94% do. That will leave you with the impression that there's maybe 1% or 5% of sort of, quote-unquote, bad scoundrel firms out there that are sort of not doing what they're supposed to do, but that the overwhelming majority of firms wouldn't be affected by this. The key problem is that offering health insurance to your employees and your employees taking up the health insurance are two very different things. My tabulations in uh, one of the figures uh, based on California data basically show that, yes, it's obviously true that most large firms are offering health insurance, but they don't necessarily offer to all their employees. If you're a part-time employee or a seasonal employee, the odds of getting it are much lower. So offering it to full-time, full-year employees is different than offering it to part-time employees. And ultimately, it looks like for most firm sizes, around two-thirds of employees are taking it up. So Even in firms that are already offering health insurance, a mandate probably would increase their costs for that final one-third of employees, so basically a 50% increase in cost based on that. Another thing about employer mandates is we not only often mandate that employers provide health insurance, but in a sense pay for a substantial amount of that health insurance. Because you can imagine, we can say you must provide health insurance, but imagine that I have the most bare-bones plan uh, with the highest deductibles and copayments that I could have, um, basically that might not get at the intent of what lawmakers are doing when they're imposing an employer mandate. Uh, and so a key question then becomes how much should firms have to pay uh, in California in in some of the other legislation, then the mandate has basically said firms must pay 80% of premiums. Uh, so, uh, and for many people that seems like it makes sense. Uh, the Averages would say that for a single plan, on average, firms are paying for about 80% of premiums. On the other hand, California's legislation for family plans 
uh, which also said that firms must pay 80% of that family plan, is actually much higher than what is typically paid for family plans. believe the tabulations show that something like for family plans, uh, the number is uh, um, closer to 70%. And remember, there's variation around that kind of cost sharing. So there are, there are certainly firms that are only paying for 50% of premiums and then others that are paying well above 80%. So those averages really do miss a lot of the costs involved. Um, another fact that is often used to sort of motivate this kind of legislation is that the cost might be low for uninsured workers. So there was sort of a disingenuous quote, in my opinion, um, which said the median California cover business will see annual cost increases of about $1,300 per worker. Um, one of the key di- things about the California legislation, which would, again, likely arise in national legislation, is that we make distinctions across firm sizes, 200 or more versus 50 or more. In the median California business, that's more than 20 employees, is something like 100 or more than 50 employees has an average of around 123 employees, which means that they will be covered not by that family mandate that I mentioned, but rather by the single individual mandate. That single individual mandate, when you calculate the numbers, isn't all that expensive. But when you're imposing on firms to also cover dependents and spouses, then the numbers actually become much more expensive. Um, Finally, in the debate, the final fact uh, or focus point that I want to make about uh, employer mandates is that uh, in the California debate, at least, there was often a focus on how much would it cost to cover the uninsured. One of the key findings in my research on California, though, was that these mandates not, do not simply say you must only cover the uninsured, but rather you must provide what we might want to call Cadillac coverage for currently insured employees. So imagine that at University of Kentucky, where they pay perhaps 50% of my premiums per month, they're now forced to pay 80% of the monthly premiums for my family plan. Well, basically, that's going to be a new bona fide cost on the university. And in that case, there are lots of employees like that in California, lots of people who already have employer-sponsored insurance whose costs are now being raised. So, in fact, almost half of the cost of the of the legislation was on people who already have health insurance, who presumably have come to some kind of agreement with their employer on the right compensation package for them in terms of wages and health insurance. And so basically uh, that's just a final point about employer mandates that one ought to keep in mind. Uh, So it takes some work to try and, uh, in a sense, break out those sound bites that are easy to say. Essentially all employers are, all large employers are already offering health insurance coverage to their employees and paying for a good share of it. But when you look at the numbers carefully, then a lot of those don't stand, stand up. So I'll leave it there. Good morning. Sorry about the heat. This must be a uh, government-run building. Um, Thanks. Uh, That was was interesting. I always come to Washington. I learn something uh, very uh, interesting when I come here, and and now I understand that interest groups like the California Medical Society sometimes shade the truth. Um, I I was very interested in Congressman Ryan's remarks. I actually, uh, and that he endorsed, uh, he's got exchanges in his legislation. I actually run two different exchanges. Um, Now, um, I am a government bureaucrat, um, I guess I was a good person for the 30 years that I spent in the private sector, and all of a sudden I became stupid and deaf about three years ago because I became a government bureaucrat. But I do run two exchanges, and I think um, they have uh, a lot of value to offer if structured correctly. You know when an idea has um, – and I'd much rather talk about exchanges than mandates, but I'm going to talk about mandates because that's the topic. But uh, before I get there, uh, you know an idea uh, has reached um, some sort of uh, fad status in Washington when everybody endorses it. And then, of course, you know that, that what people will do is redefine it um, to either uh, make it into a eunuch or, um, uh, or bend it to their fashion. So an exchange is part of everybody's approach virtually, other than single payer, um, to uh, health reform. It's just defined by people who don't like them, really, um, to be meaningless and powerless and uh, 
and otherwise by some others. So we can talk about that if you're interested in the Q&A. But um, in your packets is, um, to the, the topic at hand, mandates. We actually have two mandates, two exchanges and two mandates. Um, <clears throat> and uh, one is, as uh, Aaron suggested, uh, sort of mandate light. It's, it's actually, when you think about it, it's a, it's a modest um, financial penalty on non-mini employers who do not make some kind of contribution, pretty modest contribution, towards insurance for their employees. And if you think of it, it's sort of symmetrical with the tax deductibility for employer-sponsored insurance. Um, so I think of it, it would probably better be characterized as a please than a mandate. Um, but it's a strong please. And, um, and it's sort of a maintenance of effort uh, 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 initiative. It's a modest penalty, $295 per employee for non-mini employers, those with 11 or more employees. Please, um, to make a fair and reasonable contribution towards some kind of coverage for their employees. Um, and 295 per employee is like, what, 5 10% of the cost of insurance. So it's, it's a pretty modest inducement um, to, if you're offering insurance, continue to offer it. And then, of course, the big mandate we have, and this is slide two, if you uh, look at the stuff that uh, I gave you, which is a kind of a general update on Massachusetts, uh, slide two, you see a second kind of mandate, which is a real mandate. It's an individual mandate, um, and that's um, a part of kind of the rubric that we have done health reform in Massachusetts under, which uh, you've, you've probably noticed the words picked up in Washington as well, shared responsibility. Uh, meaning that everybody's got to sort of kick in because, after all, we're talking about a lot of money here. Uh, in fact, three years down the road, actually, we always use lagging data, so two years down the road, um, the shared responsibility has really kind of panned out in Massachusetts between the individual mandate, the employer, strong, the strong pleas to employers, and um, uh, subsidization for um, uh, low-income people, uh, not unlike a voucher in, in some ways, um, we've actually seen pretty much a maintenance of the financial responsibility among the three major payers, government, employers, and individuals, before and after reform, pretty much the same shares of the pie, the same responsibility. And the result has been that um, in two years, from 2006 to 2008, we've taken the uninsurance rate in Massachusetts down from over 10 percent to 2.6 percent, which is a remarkable drop. So there are 430,000 some odd newly insured in just two years in Massachusetts. Um, 2.6 percent is uh, compares with a national average over 15 percent and climbing. Uh, and more important than the numbers, these are real people. So, you know, they're folks like Jacqueline Mikolos, uh, who was walking around with breast, breast cancer but didn't uh, have any financial resources to um, actually go get the tests and so forth, and now she's alive. She probably would be dead if she hadn't gotten health insurance, referral to a specialist, biopsy, treatment, et cetera. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds of stories like that. So if we don't think we ration health care, in this country with 50 million people who are uninsured, we're speaking a lot of ideological bunk to each other. Um, this is, there may be rationing, there may even be rationing in, under all sorts of different schemes, but we have rationing right now. Um, and so I think it's nice that we've taken that uninsurance rate down to 2.6%. I think that's something to be really proud of. Uh, that is the major uh, sort of objective of what we're doing in Massachusetts. We had a head fake towards cost containment, but that's really not been the ball game uh, for the first several years. We, of course, now that we have virtually everybody insured, have to confront costs, and so we're having the most adult conversation in the country about cost containment right now in Massachusetts. Um, it's about five times tougher to do cost containment than it is to cover people. So. Uh, no, no, all bets are still off. So I mentioned that we run two exchanges. Um, uh, on your pack in slide seven, there's uh, one that uh, is the exchange where we're really the prudent purchaser. We're like an employer buying for a, a group of employees using our money, that is public money, and offering the employees a choice now of five different health plans with different price points, a defined contribution uh, by the public program. Um, and we managed to keep trend in the first four years of that program, oh, uh, fiscal 07 to, to fiscal 10, starting in a few weeks, to under 5%, 4.7%. That's actually about half of the typical national uh, trend for health insurance in that same period. So I think we've done a good job with that. Unfortunately, it's only 175,000 people, so it's the 
just a little small, it's 2, 3, 4% of Massachusetts. It's not cost containment across the Commonwealth, but for the use of public monies, we've actually done a good job. And um, we're not trying to put these health plans out of business. They earn nice 1, 2, 3% margins on average, and we want them to survive. Um, and we just want them to be very disciplined in the way they negotiate with providers on rates and the way they manage care. And so far, so good. The other exchange that we run is totally unsubsidized. We are truly just a distribution channel, just a marketplace for unsubsidized insurance to individuals and uh, recently with a pilot to small employers. And uh, we've got about 25% of the growth in the non-group market coming through that second exchange uh, where we make it very easy for folks to shop. And I have to tell you, um, you know, usually when you're running, a, uh, my experience, when you're running something that's in the public eye and it's kind of controversial, you can be sure you'll be criticized, okay? And we are criticized for lots of different things. The one thing I actually have never been criticized for, and it's just, so I'm, I'm going to get it right now. I should not say this, but is this, is this unsubsidized exchange? I mean, it is remarkable. I go to cocktail parties. I mean, I was giving a talk at the Federal Reserve Board uh, in Boston, and some guy stands up. I just talked about exchanges, and, I'm, and he said, I just bought insurance for the exchange, and I'm sort of covering my uh, private parts, and I'm getting ready, you know, for an attack because that's what you get when you're in public life. And he says, it's remarkable. I just moved here from Texas. I went on your website. It took me 20 minutes to shop. I put in three pieces of information, my zip code, my age, my family size. Up popped seven options. I could tell the price, the benefit difference. And it's fantastic. And, and this very simple form of transparency of just organizing a marketplace and making the options standardized enough that consumers can actually shop, which is way different from an electronic telephone book, which is how some people would like to neuter exchanges, list everybody, list a thousand plans, give them no real standardization. So standardized, easy to shop comparisons are very, very uh, effective. So that's the other exchange we run. Um, the uh, a little bit more about mandates now. The real mandate is on the individual uh, adult. Um, we have introduced it in a very kind of soft, phased-in way. Um, I do not have a security system. If you go over to the Department of Revenue, um, it takes about 20 minutes to get cleared to go in. Ours, you push a button on our elevator. We handle the mandate. We handle the appeals um, so far. Um, nobody's taken a shotgun to us. Um, and it's actually gone over reasonably well in Massachusetts. There's been no taxpayers' revolt. We started with a modest panel uh, penalty in the first year. If you're an individual who doesn't buy insurance, there's an exemption um, for religious purposes and the results from the first uh, year's uh, uh, 2007 application of the uh, individual mandate is that about 10,000 people applied for and were given a, a religious exemption. Um, the uh, compliance with this program, which involves a whole new <gasps> government form, a health care 1099, um, is 98.6%, which is remarkable. 98.6% of our 4 million tax filers actually filed the paperwork and, and filled out the forms correctly. Um, about 130,000 were uh, deemed able to afford and assessed a penalty uh, or would be uh, liable for a penalty, except that a whole big piece of those folks um, in the first year it doesn't apply to. And about 70,000 um, were deemed unable to afford insurance at current prices given their income. And so health reform didn't help them. You know, they don't have access to a public program or employer-sponsored insurance, but it didn't hurt them either. Um, so we have overall about 200,000 out of 4 million uh, filers in the first year uh, who, um, as I say, do not have health insurance, and um, some were penalized and some were not. So that's how the, man the individual mandate has worked. And the last thing I would mention, although uh, one can always argue the relevance of this, is outside of Massachusetts, Massachusetts health reform is extremely controversial. Okay. Uh, it is demonized or lionized, depending on what you think of national health reform. And uh, inside Massachusetts, it's actually not terribly controversial. About 75% of likely-to-vote voters, which is a phenomenal approval rate, approve of uh, reform. About 60% uh, actually approve of the individual mandate. Of course, if you ask those people who have been forced that's what a mandate does to buy insurance. They're a little less enthusiastic about it. But um, in terms of the overall polity, um, it's turned out that this mandate has gone down um, remarkably well for what is clearly medicine. So thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you all coming out. And uh, not to worry, John, uh, we're not going to endorse an exchange here at the, at the Cato Institute. Uh, uh, we, we actually don't think very highly of the exchanges. Uh, we also don't think very highly of individual mandates. And let me give you uh, a few reasons why. Uh, the first, and I think perhaps the most important and most fundamental reason, is that an individual mandate is a unique and in many ways unprecedented violation of individual liberty and choice. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office, in fact, are the people who coined the terms unique and unprecedented, and said it would impose a, a duty on individuals as members of a society uh, to purchase a specific set of, government, of services that would be heavily regulated by the government. In fact, they looked around to try to find something that was even remotely comparable to this mandate to purchase health insurance, and the only thing they could say was close, but not quite as bad, was the draft. And they suggested that the draft was as close as you could come to the idea of an individual mandate for health insurance. Uh, Sherry Gleed, uh, who was actually going to be here at this conference as a speaker until the uh, Obama administration appointed her to, uh, to HHS, and she had to drop out, uh, along with all the other administration speakers for some reason, uh, said that uh, to develop a system that could identify and penalize scoff laws would take uh, effort and ingenuity, uh, particularly in our diverse and mobile country, and, quote, it may require a degree of intrusiveness and bureaucracy that some would find unpalatable. And in fact, in the bill that Ted Kennedy uh, is having vote on the HELP Committee today that he just brought out, it would actually empower the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Secretary of Treasury to demand such documentation and information as they may require in order to enforce this mandate, We're leaving that unspecified what papers, what forms, what they want us to have to fill out. Uh, despite this intrusiveness, an individual mandate is likely to be uh, unenforceable in the long run. Uh, the idea that you're going to track down every undocumented alien, every homeless person, every mentally ill person, people who change jobs, people who move in and out of a state, uh, people who, who change their insurance plans, you're going to track all of them down, find out if they have the proper type of insurance, and then penalize them for failing to get it, I think is very unrealistic. And I think the results of Massachusetts show, show that. Uh, now, no one would dispute that Massachusetts has significantly reduced the number of uninsured in the state since the reforms went in, went in place. I think a large portion of that has to do with the subsidies, not necessarily the mandate. But I would, I would quibble a bit with the numbers uh, that you gave, John, uh, that 2.6 percent uh, is, I think, there's reason to be skeptical of. Uh, a lot of some of that we know for sure, the number of people enrolled through Commonwealth care, the number of Medicaid expansions, even the employer provided insurance. But a great deal of that relies actually on a telephone survey. Uh, and the telephone surveys are liable to miss exactly the people who are most likely to be uninsured, people like undocumented aliens, people, young people who don't have landlines and so on. In fact, if you look at a contemporaneous uh, survey done by the Census Bureau, there was actually a door-to-door -door survey they came up with 5.4% uh, uninsured. Or if you look at the examination of income tax returns, it was about 5%. So I, do, I, I think the number of uninsured in a state may well be higher. Uh, some folks, uh, Steffi Woolhandler and others, suggest that you have a little over 200,000 people uninsured in the state, which, which uh, you know, is better than it was, but is not universal coverage uh, that we were promised when the program began. Uh, I would also suggest that an individual mandate uh, is, in fact, the first in a whole series of dominoes that would almost inevitably lead to greater and greater government control of health care. Uh, as the CBO says, uh, if you're going to have a mandate for insurance, you're go it's going to have to be heavily regulated and heavily subsidized. Uh, you have to define, for example, what insurance meets the mandate. Uh, if I lived in Massachusetts, my million-dollar deductible policy probably doesn't uh, qualify. Uh, in fact, I believe you have a $2,000 uh, uh, limit on deductibles and a $4,000 cap on out-of-pocket out expenses. Uh, once you start, and other mandates as well, once you start down this road to mandating what, a particular, what this product that everyone has to buy will be, you create a special interest bonanza. 
as every interest group, uh, providers and disease constituencies, demands to be included uh, in this in this product. As they are included, the costs rise, both in terms of the premiums and the subsidies necessary to keep this affordable for people. As the premiums rise and as the subsidies rise, the public demands cost controls and you begin to put in premium caps or other forms uh, of cost control containment. You're already seeing, again, this in Massachusetts where they're talking about maybe even a global budget, like in Canada, to restrict health care spending is one of the options being uh, considered there. As you bring in these cost controls, you end up with rationing. Uh, you squeeze down the reimbursements to providers who stop uh, seeing patients, uh, refuse to accept new patients, and you begin to see longer and longer waits for care. In Massachusetts, the wait to see an internist, for example, has risen from 33 to 52 days uh, since the reforms were enacted. Uh, and I, while that's not all due uh, undoubtedly to the mandate, I think a certain amount of it is attributable, well, not just to the mandate, but to the ripples outward from the mandate. So I think you have a great many problems when you have an individual mandate, and why would you then uh, want to do this? If you're going to have all these problems, what's the reason behind an individual mandate? And I don't think that the reasoning behind this actually holds up. Uh, the primary reason we're told is that we need to have an individual mandate is to get people insured to deal with the problem of uncompensated care. That is, and, and it's, a very, it's very true, uh, if you don't have health insurance and then you go out and get hit by a truck, uh, you go to the hospital, they treat you, uh, and then you refuse to pay your bill, uh, you, that cost is going to be shifted on to the rest of us. And we're all going to pay for it, either in terms of higher taxes for uncompensated care or in terms of higher premiums uh, that, that we're going to see in our insurance. Uh, there was just a, a story, I don't know if anyone saw it the other day, a big front-page story in uh, USA Today, and there was a number of other newspapers about a study by uh, Families USA showing that we all pay this uh, uninsured tax, uh, that they called it, uh, about uh, $1,200, I believe it was, per year that we all pay in higher premiums because of this. And no doubt that that's true. But let's keep it in perspective. The cost of uncompensated care in this country is actually about 2.5% of total health care spending. It's about $40 billion a year out of a, some $2 trillion in, uh, in total health care spending. Now, you know, that's real money, but it is a much more manageable problem, I think, than is commonly believed. Uh, it is less... This cost shifting that goes on, and we talk about it being such a big deal, this cost shifting that we're, we're paying higher premiums because of the uninsured, the, that cost shifting is less for the uninsured than it is because of government programs like Medicare and Medicaid, which under-reimburse physicians, and therefore uh, that cost from the under-reimbursement is shifted over to those of us with insurance, and we pay much higher premiums to make up for it. So if we really want to deal with the problem of cost shifting, why don't we deal with it in the government-run programs first before we, we worry about this 2.5% uncompensated care problem? And, in fact, rather than deal with this problem, what we're seeing now in Washington is proposals to create a new government-run program which will impose lower reimbursement rates and accelerate the cost shifting that goes to people with private insurance. And, of course, we should also note that, we ha that the imposition of mandates does not necessarily eliminate uncompensated care. We haven't seen an elimination of uncompensated care in Massachusetts. In fact, the hospitals there say they still need their subsidies for uncompensated care. Uh, originally, the idea was they were going to do away with the subsidies to hospitals, and this would shift all the subsidies to the individuals. Well, they shifted the subsidies to the individuals, and the hospitals say, wait a minute, you can't take away our subsidies for uncompensated care. We still need them. And, in fact, uncompensated care has not declined proportionately with the, with the supposed drop in insurance. Uh, finally, we're, to, uh, we're also told that we need to have this in order to bring more young and healthy people into the pool, that the people least likely, you know, most likely to go without insurance voluntarily are young and healthy. That leaves the insurance pool older and sicker, uh, and that if we have a mandate, we can force these young and healthy people into the pool, and that will therefore lower premiums uh, for everyone. Uh, well, that's true, I should say, only insofar as you prohibit actuarial underwriting uh, of insurance. If people are actually underwritten on the basis of their health, it doesn't matter whether you have young and healthy people or old sick people in the pool. Everybody's premium is based on their own health. So it's only a matter to the degree that we require or mandate some form of community rating uh, or some other form of pro 
some other limits on actuarial underwriting. That, that was, makes it a problem. Uh, second, uh, there's better ways, if we want to bring young and healthy people into the pool to, uh, to do so, reducing the cost of health insurance by eliminating things like community rating that drives up the cost of insurance for young and healthy people might help. Uh, you know, you would think if you want people to buy a product, creating a, le- a legislation that drives up the cost of that product isn't a good way to get people to buy it. But yet we do things like community rating that drives up, makes it more expensive for young, healthy people to buy insurance. And then we're surprised when young, healthy people don't buy insurance. Uh, New York State uh, was a classic example when they introduced community rating in their state. Uh, some 500,000 people, mostly young and healthy, dropped their health insurance uh, because of the increase in, in premiums. Uh, so there are ways we can do this better. Finally, I, I would suggest that the mandate doesn't necessarily get rid of the, uh, the adverse selection problem that I'm talking about. It doesn't necessarily bring more young people in compared to, uh, to others. Uh, if you look at Massachusetts, before the mandate went in place, about 30% of people without health insurance were under the age of 25. Now about 35% of the people uh, are under the age of 25 who don't have insurance. So you haven't necessarily done away with the adverse uh, selection problem. Uh, Anyway, I think if you look at all of those things, what you find is a very thin justification for an individual mandate and a lot of problems with an individual mandate. Basically, you're getting very little gain and a whole heck of a lot of pain. Uh, so I don't think that's the way we want to go in terms of health care reform. And I would just pass that on to the folks on Capitol Hill who think that the only problems with the health care reform plan we're getting up there is this idea of a public-run plan. I think that's true, it's a big problem, but if, you get, but if you get rid of that public run plan and you have an individual mandate, you will inevitably run down the same road to government-run health care. Thank you all very much. Uh, okay, I'm going to start off by asking a few questions of our panelists, and then I'm going to open it to the audience. Um, so my first, my first question is for Mr. Kingsdale. Um, do we do this for the benefit of the people who are buying the insurance, or is it a tax? By which I mean, are you know, the people who have been covered in Massachusetts, did we primarily benefit them by requiring them to do something that they should have done but they stupidly didn't, like buying insurance? Uh, are we, did we mostly end up protecting them from a catastrophic event, or did the state of Massachusetts mostly force them into a pool uh, that caused them to pay far more sort of on a probability-weighted basis than, uh, than they otherwise would have in order to help subsidize older and sicker people? Well, uh, the short answer is both. Um, I, 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 wanted, I, I do want to you – know, we can disagree about what's likely to happen or, or hard to discern adverse consequences. I, I would like, uh, both in response to, to Michael and to this question, to point out the number is irrefutably 2.6 percent. I'm a little disappointed that Michael, like, Steffi, like a Steffi Woolhandler on the far left, would um, continue to cite a 5 percent number. So the 5 percent number is legitimate. That was from 2007. I mean, this is pretty simple stuff. We introduced reform in 06. We had a two- to three-year implementation phase. We went down from 10 to 5 in 07, and we went down to 2.6. The 2.6 is a telephone survey, but it was specially redone to try to capture people with mobile phones. It's been confirmed by two other surveys, and it corresponds perfectly with the 430,000 newly insured. The number is 2.6. Now, it might balloon. I'm not, you know, we can legitimately disagree about the future, the achieve, and we can argue about with mandates are a good way to get there. Clearly, we were trying to get people to buy insurance um, that was good for them and under our adjusted community rating system to get folks into the risk pool who would, on average, frankly, pay more um, than their expected output immediately from insurance. So the answer is both. But we did get all but 2.6% into the risk pool. So I guess my, my follow-up question would be, what, uh, what have you seen in, at, the, at the medical services level uh, in terms of the, the drop in uncompensated care? After this, uh, after the mandate. So um, we are we are plagued by um, you know lagging indicators. Even the two point six is from the summer of 08, and I would not 
while the number of newly insured seems to have held constant through December of 08, I wouldn't be shocked to see it starting to the 2.6 starting to edge up in the middle of a you know some people call it a recession, I call it a depression. Um, the um, uh, I- 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 impact on um, uh, uncompensated care is even more lagged. So we have really numbers only through early of o- early 08. That shows about a 36 to 38 percent reduction in uncompensated care admissions and visits. Overall, there's about a 44 percent reduction in public dollars going to pay hospitals, health centers, and others for uncompensated care. So that's a pretty substantial reduction. That actually helps lower um, government's net cost for this whole reform uh, after three years to uh, uh, $700 million in the last fiscal year, which is split 50-50 state and federal. So there's no doubt it's cost us more money as, as a government, uh, taxpayers, to insure 7.5 percent more people, um, but there have been some offsets, and a significant offset is from uncompensated care, and of course, those who receive the care say they want more money. I mean, you know, that's hardly a shock to anybody. So the fact that hospitals say, um, yeah, we still have uncompensated care, and they do have still some, um, is by no means a, a, a condemnation of the, or a refutation of the reduction, the real reduction that's occurred. Uh, so my next question is, is for Mr. Tanner. Um, why shouldn't we have forced insurance in areas where people are going to be um, tempted to behave irrationally because they know that society can't make a credible commitment not to care for them? And this is an argument that's been made about Social Security, that people who don't save for retirement know that in the end we're not going to let them starve. And so people may be tempted to undersave and then free ride. Similarly, people know that if they don't get insurance, they're not going to show up at the emergency room and be allowed to bleed out because they don't have any way to pay for it. So why shouldn't we force people um, not to free ride on the rest of society? Let, 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 me, let me just just to get back again to, to, to quibble on the numbers again. The, the Census Bureau survey was actually done in the spring of 2008. So, so, that's, so it's essentially year. so it's essentially a, a year a year old. Yeah, at, at the same time, the the first telephone survey by by the Urban Institute folks came up with this with a two point six percent number. So they're, they're contemporaneous in terms of when they're kind of, now. It could have fallen, I suppose, over the last year uh, by about half. But uh, but uh, the numbers that we're quoting are, are sort of contemporaneous, uh, I, I believe. But that aside. Uh, the question of how, to, when it's proper to intervene, sure, there is a, a clearly a free rider problem. Uh, the question is whether or not that, free, or to what size that free rider problem is, and does it justify all the other problems that would stem from having an individual mandate? If you look at it at being about two and a half percent of total healthcare spending right now, and if you could reduce that through other mechanisms, such as making health insurance more affordable for young, healthy people so that they would go into the market, and once they're in the market with a sort of a guaranteed renewable environment, they're liable to stay insured throughout. If you could create health insurance so it was portable, as Paul Ryan talked about, so that you didn't lose your insurance when you'd lose your job, we could bring that 2.5% down to 1% or, or percent or less. And then it might just be worth it as a society to eat that cost in order to avoid the distortions in the health insurance market that would occur once you create that mandate with all the, all the other intended problems that, that I mentioned. Um, and my last question uh, for, for Mr. Yalowitz. Um, Professor, what do you think the, uh, you, you know, you talked about uh, the hidden costs of, uh, of imposing mandates on employers <laughs> and how people downplay those, but I suppose my question is, for the people who were advocating this, was that a feature or a bug? Um, you know, it, it, a mandate is a way to, to shift costs that you don't want someone else to bear onto a company. So, um, you know, did, does this actually is this a politically persuasive argument? Well, what is probably uh, would worry people about the cost would be the fact that uh, imagine as a company, I have all of these new costs. Somehow, I have to adjust. Uh, if it purely came out of profits, perhaps some people would say, "Who cares?" To the extent that it comes out of it shifted back in the form of lower wages or in the form of lower employment or perhaps in the form of higher consumer prices, then the kind of people who would say who cares about employer profits might 
very well care about those sorts of things. Part of what you're saying, though, which is part of this is certainly deliberate. Uh, so, for example, uh, there was very deliberate attempt to shift, say, Medicaid costs. Uh, imagine that there's a person who's working and on Medicaid. Shift those costs onto the employer. People will have uh, – now, one thing to note about that, there's no real new insurance coverage there. So to the extent that your questions about uh, free riding and so forth matter, then th this is – it's just a tax, right? All we're saying is rather than the state of California or the U.S. government paying for Medicaid, we're now going to try and shift a lot of that onto certain employers. Uh, so uh, I don't – you know, I have my own opinions on whether one should do that or not, but one should be perhaps I – would, I would hope someone would be transparent about, about that, I guess, is the thing. Um, now I'm going to open it up to the floor for questions. Uh, they're on the back by the door. Hi, thank you. Uh, I'm Greg Scanlon with Consumers for Healthcare Choices uh, uh, at the Heartland Institute. Um, uh, John, I, my question is actually sincerely put, and, and, and it's not entirely a criticism. I remember when Massachusetts was being considered, uh, almost everyone there said said that this is not going to be a model for the nation, that uh, it, that it works in this time and this place, but, uh, but, but the nation as a whole and even other states shouldn't try to replicate it. I noticed that you um, uh, conceded that... Uh, uh, the people directly affected by the mandate are not particularly happy with it. Uh, uh, Bob London found in a survey that the people directly affected uh, feel it's hurting them rather than helping them. But th that number of people is fairly small in Massachusetts and not like uh, California where there's 20% uninsured, Texas where there's 25%, Florida where there's 25% uninsured. Um, uh, it strikes me that the popular resistance in those kinds of states would be pretty overwhelming. Would you care to comment on that? Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. And, of course, it's speculative as to how the rest of the country but would react. But I, as a generalization, and, and I've said this uh, before, uh, generalizing by analogy from one state's experience to this very varied country is always dangerous. Um, so, uh, you know, if you look at where the uninsured are, one-third of them are in three states. One-third of the entire country's uninsured are in California, Florida, and Texas. Uh, clearly, the hill to climb there is much steeper than it was in Massachusetts, which had a 10-plus percent uninsurance rate, um, lower than national average. Um, and, you know, the politics, I like to say our board spans the full spectrum of Massachusetts politics all the way from the far left to the dead center. Um, and, you know, the politics in Massachusetts are a little different, uh, no doubt about it. But um, I, I'm not sure it's a theoretical issue. It depends a lot on how it's done uh, and how it's explained to people and – we haven't suffered sort of a taxpayer revolt, if you will. Um, there's no question that folks who to whom it would apply because they have chosen not to buy insurance are going to have a different view than those who are actually paying for them when they get sick uh, because they don't have health insurance. Um, and health insurance, you know, a lot of countries it, or some countries, it just you're born into it. There are other countries, even with universal health insurance, where it's a voluntary sign-up. And so Holland and Switzerland, they have 1% and 2% on insurance rates because you still actually have to sign up for this. And it's a grudge buy. Nobody goes down to their corner broker on a Saturday morning to see how fast they can run this baby up from 0 to 60 and smell the new leather. It is not a consumer delectable. It is a grudge buy. And the uninsured are particularly anxious and put off by – signing on to a 150-page contract for a 12-month forward uh, uh, financial services uh, uh, buy on services that they hope, in fact, most of them think, they won't actually use. Um, so absolutely, the mandate um, is teeth to get people into a risk pool. I don't know how it will go over nationally. Um, you know, we've done it flexibly. Uh, we've done it uh, with the attitude that insurance is probably something you ought to have, um, at least at the catastrophic coverage level of an HSA, and federally qualified high-deductible health plans do meet our minimum credible coverage uh, requirements. But um, you may well be right, Greg, that nationally this thing will go over like a lead balloon. I, I really don't know. Um, next, uh, right there in the white shirt. Mark Pauly. Um, uh, 
I uh, guess it, I am a free market person who's in favor of an individual mandate. Uh, and one reason is to avoid the kind of anecdotes that John was starting to talk about, about the, the woman with breast cancer who couldn't otherwise get care, even if those are relatively infrequent. First, I'll sound noble and moral. I think they ought not to happen in this country. But secondly, I think they lead to... Uh, I, I, think, I think they lead to... Uh, uh, alternative ways to try to deal with free riders that are even more dysfunctional, like regulating nonprofit insurers and requiring uh, um, uh, the uh, public insurers to pay f- indirectly for the free riders and so forth. Um, I disagree with Megan. I think free riding is perfectly rational from an individual's point of view. It's just socially irrational. Uh, but here's a way to think about uh, the issue of, um, of, uh, of, a, of a mandate uh, or the absence of a mandate that you might find useful. Uh, uh, one version of it's a little silly, although I think it makes a philosophical point, and the other is a little more serious. So imagine we did allow, or John allowed people in Massachusetts to elect not to be insured. Uh, maybe even the religious objectors this would apply to. Um, I think they ought to be issued an uninsured card. And the uninsured card, this is the silly version, but not totally, should say, in the case of accident or illness, do not take me to the nearest emergency room. I made my choice. Uh, (laughs) And uh, because otherwise, because of PDUFA, uh, the rest of us will have to pay for that person. The more serious version is to say you can be uninsured, but what you need to do is set up a spending account, an earmarked account with money in it that will be used to pay for at least a big portion of your costs if you you do end up having to use care so that you can't be a free rider. And um, um, at least when I think of those two alternatives, my inclination then is to say, um, this seems much too complicated. Why not just uh, require people to have insurance? I agree you'll never be able to track down the mountain man up in Idaho and issue them their insurance card. But uh, if we can cover the great bulk of the uninsured, I think we'd be ahead. My, my, my question to you would be, though, what insurance then do you require everyone to buy? Uh, you know, if you look at the Kennedy bill, it's going to require, for example, abortion services be covered. Now, what if you're an ardent right-to-lifer? Should you have to then pay, you know, have that rider in your insurance plan or not meet the mandate that might be there? I'm, I, I go back. I started at Cato back in 1993. It was a time when we were considering a national health insurance plan and O.J. was in jail. And here we are today, and uh, not much has changed. <laughs> but, but, if you remember- but he does have coverage. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. But if you remember that debate, the advertising here in Washington was enormous as every possible special interest wanted to be part of their minimum benefits package. You know, we had one day it was the dentists advertising, the next day it was the chiropractors, and then the osteopaths advertised, and then the chiropractor said, no, the osteopaths shouldn't be included, and then the osteopaths attacked. I mean, it went on and on and on, and by the end of the day, that minimum benefits package in the Clinton plan was, a, was like 45 pages long of benefits. I don't see how you can have that not happen uh, in this plan. Um, I'm afraid that's actually all the time we have. We ran a little over. So I uh, thank everyone for coming. And uh, the, uh, the nice thing about our debate about the numbers. Thanks is- to all of our panelists for their.